0: Section eleven of The Soul of London by Ford Maddox FORD This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter four continued: London was always press ridden. In the days of Johnson (who invented the magazine) the newspapers would make a prodigious fuss-they could drive a lady so sensible as mrs Thrale Piercy almost to distraction with comments upon her debated marriage, and supply the town with talk as opposed to conversation about such a matter as that Piersy marriage, for days, months, and years on end. And earlier, even, Defoe, who was the first of the journalists, made town talk out of solid facts, unsolid fiction or practical projects. But books still monopolized the airy realms of philosophical speculations, preachers still retained the sole right to lecture upon divinity, and books and preachers entered intimately into the lives of men and women. People read Clarissa by the year, and debated at dinner-tables as to the abstract proprieties of the case of Pamela. The generalisation flourished. Conversation in consequence was possible, but with the coming of the modern newspaper, the book has been deposed from its intimate position in the hearts of men. You cannot in London read a book from day to day, because you must know the news in order to be a fit companion for your fellow Londoner. Connected thinking has become nearly impossible because it is nearly impossible to find any general idea that will connect into one train of thought Home Rule for Egypt, a batch of stabbing cases and infant motorists It is hardly worth while to trace the evolution of this process In the seventies to eighties the Londoner was still said to get his general ideas from the leader writers of his favourite paper nowadays even the leader is dying out so that in general, the Londoner has lost all power of connected conversation, and nearly all power of connected thought. But if his dinner-table has become democratised, and he will not suffer a connected talker among his friends, he still retains some liking for duly licensed preachers, some respect for the official talker or moralist. Generally speaking, he sets apart one day in seven for this individual, and generally speaking, that one day is the Sabbath. The stolid London of squares and clean streets to the westward still retains something of its Sunday morning hush. The pavements are empty and as if whitened, and where there are the large detached houses with bits of garden and large old trees, the town still has its air of being a vast cemetery of large mausoleums that no one ever visits. Then indeed that third state, the deep leisure, settles upon the middle London of the professional and merchant classes there is a stillness, a hush. Breakfast is half an hour or an hour later than on other days. The perfume of coffee, the savour of bacon, of fish, of sausages, floats on a softer and stiller air. The interminable rumble of all the commissariat wagons, of butchers, of greengrocers, of stores' carts—all that unending procession that on weekdays rattles and reverberates throughout the morning—is stilled. In the unaccustomed quiet you can hear the decent hiss of the kettle on its tripod. You can hear the rustle of stiff petticoats coming down from the second floor. You can hear even the voices of the servants in the kitchen, just suggested, as if down there an interminable monologue were being carried on. And beside the breakfast dishes there lie, still, the Sunday papers. As a rule there are two of these—strips of white and strips of buff, like supplementary table napkins. The more venerable contain practically no news they are glanced at to see the prices of the day before but the arms that support these sheets are not the nervous hurried arms of the weekday the glances meander down the columns there is time there is plenty of time as if the reader in that hush and pause realized and felt just for once that he is after all a creature of eternity with all time before him There is an opulence, a luxury of minutes to be bathed in, as it were, in that sort of London Sunday, that makes one understand very well why that part of London is so loath to part with its Sabbath. The Sunday paper is now, I should say, a much more general feature than it used to be. It invades the most Sabbatarian breakfast tables. But I remember that, as a boy, I used to have to walk, in Kensington, nearly two miles to procure an observer for my father every Sunday morning. It was considered that the exercise was good for me, lacking my daily walk to school. And the paper-shop was a dirty, obscure and hidden little place that during the week carried on the sale mostly of clandestine and objectionable broadsheets directed against the Papists. The Sunday paper, in fact, was shunned by all respectable news-agents and, in consequence, the Sunday breakfast-table was a much less restful thing, since no book of sermons beside the plate could equal that respectable anodyne. All over the town these sheets, as if they were white petals bearing oblivion, settle down, restful and beneficent, like so many doses of poppy-seed. In the backyards of small cottages, separated one from another by breast-high modern palings, you find by the hundreds of thousands, it is certified by accountants blanks weekly news blanks weekly paper blanks news of the week and on each back doorstep in his shirt sleeves in his best trousers and waistcoat voluptuously soberly and restfully that good fellow the london mechanic sits down to read the paper and in general those sunday and weekly papers preach to a considerable extent One middle-class favourite contains at least six different headings under which can be found reflections on social subjects, on sporting subjects, on religious subjects, even on subjects purely jocular, and on such abstruse matters as Are Clever Women Popular? And the Mechanics Weeklies have sturdy tones of their own. They fulminate against the vices, meannesses, and hypocrisies of the wealthy. They unveil the secrets of courts. They preach patriotism or the love of God. So that even if he no longer go to church or chapel the Londoner on Sunday mornings before his Sunday dinner gets as a rule his dose of general reflections and it is characteristic of him that although he cannot bear preaching that he might have to answer conversational preaching he dearly loves the preacher who is beyond his reach he will listen to sermons to funeral orations to public speeches to lectures, He loves no novel that has not a moral basis of one kind or another, that has not some purpose or another, that does not preach some sermon. Upon the stage he likes most of all moralising old men and heroic generalisations in favour of one virtue or another. But it is characteristic of the strong lines that he draws between life and the arts, that although he is never tired of seeing a hamlet upon the stage, he will call a hamlet of private life morbid, dangerous unhealthy and insupportable. Thus, in the London of leisure, any social intercourse between men and women is nowadays become almost impossible, for no man can be himself without sooner or later proclaiming whatever may be the particular moral that he draws from life. He could not really utter his thoughts without revealing the fact that he loves virtue, or does not, or that he considers there is such a thing as virtue, or is not. He is therefore driven, the social Londoner at his leisure, to action instead of to speech. He puts his feet on the dinner-table, beguiles his after-dinners with cards, with recitations, with mechanical pianos, with the theatres, with moonlight automobile drives, or with watching skating competitions on artificial ice. He plays golf, he witnesses cricket matches, football matches, billiard matches, He goes to Tuppeny Gaffes in Mile End, or parades in dense and inarticulate crowds of young men and young girls for hours of an evening in front of the shops of the Great Highways. And these paradings are, for the million or so of the young people of this huge world that is London, the great delight, the great feature of a life otherwise featureless enough. In externals one parade is like another, but the small gradations are infinite. Thus, in one parade, there will be a great number of sets, each of the same social level, each set with its gossip, its chaff, its manner of accost, its etiquette, its language. You get, as it were, an impression of entering one vast family party amid the rustle of feet, of dresses, the glitter-clatter of canes, the subdued shrieks of laughter, the hushed personal remarks. As a rule in all these parades, in the Fleet Street Monkey Walk, as at Shepherd's Bush, in Islington, as in Mile End Road, the youths early in the evening stand in knots, cloth caps not consorting with bowler hats and straw yards with neither. They talk with a certain ostentation and a certain affectation of swagger, boasting or acting as chorus in praise of one another. The girls parade up and down arm in arm, white aprons being shunned by stuffed dresses, and feather hats shunning the straws perched forward over the eyes. Heads steal round swiftly over shoulders as line of girls passes not of youths. And at these electric moments the voices grow higher, and little shoves and nudges pass like waves in a field of corn. There is not any psychical moment for pairing off, but the process begins as the kindly dusk falls. A youth slips away from a knot, a girl hangs back from a line till little by little the knots dwindle away altogether and there are no more lines the ceremonials of the actual greeting are astonishingly various and more rigidly observed than the etiquette of the court of spain in westbourne grove the young shop assistant raises his bowler drawls how are you miss for all the world as they do in rotten row in the mile end road and in shepherd's bush the factory girls slap likely youths violently upon the back and are as violently poked in the side for answer, both girl and young man uttering obscenities positively astounding, without any obscene intention in the world. And then commences, mysterious and ceremonial, the walking out, the period of probation, the golden age. For, after all, it is a golden age, an age of vague emotions, of words uttered, insignificant but fraught with more meaning in each absurd syllable than in all the tirades of romeo to the moon do you like fringes um ah um well there you are a one i dote on blue eyes so that by nine o'clock the parades are full of couples orderly quiet moving unceasingly up and down with conversation utterly exhausted with the glamorous fall of light and shade with titillating emotions, with inscrutable excitements, rustling, supremely alive and supremely happy, with here and there a violent heartache, and here and there a great loneliness. And here, for the good Democrat, is the best sight, the really good sight, of London at leisure, since here is London, the great London of the future, the London that matters to the Democrat, in the making this is london really young really pagan really idyllic really moral really promising a future to the race really holding its population by the spell that nothing will ever break the spell of contagious humanity and of infinite human contacts these are the londoners who will never go back so by her leisure moments london holds us and if you desire a sight equally impressive of london at leisure Go down Piccadilly to Hyde Park Corner on a pleasant summer day. On the right of you, you have all those clubs with all those lounging and luxuriating men. On the left there is a stretch of Green Park, hidden and rendered hideous by recumbent forms. They lie like corpses, or like soldiers in a stealthy attack, a great multitude of broken men and women, they too eternally at leisure. They lie, soles of boots to crowns of heads just out of arm's reach, one from the other, for fear of being rifled by their couch-mates. They lie motionless, dun-coloured, pitiful and horrible, bathing in leisure that will never end. There, indeed, is your London at leisure, the two ends of the scale offered violently for inspection, confronting and ignoring steadily the one the other. For, in the mass, the men in the windows never look down. The men in the park never look up. In those two opposed sights you have your London, your great tree, in its leisure, making for itself new sap and new fibre, holding aloft its vigorous leaves, shedding its decayed wood, strewing on the ground its rotten twigs and stuff for graveyards. End of chapter 4 End of section 11